Well, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Throughout this series, uh, this is week two on our marriage series that we've just called Captivated. Uh, We'll be going back to Genesis. We're doing that because uh, we're trying to kind of bring to the forefront here and look at uh, what God has created and what God has Designed And so last week, uh, we, we defined what marriage was, and we used uh, Tim Keller's definition from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And here's, I want to remind you uh, what we said last week in case you weren't here. Here's how we defined marriage, that marriage was a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. And, and then Keller goes on to describe, according to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ to refine our character, to create stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all of this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. And so what we said last week is when we think about marriage, we're not thinking through uh, kind of the cultural lens of consumerism, that you better adjust to me, you better meet all of my needs, you better make me happy, you better solve all the issues going on in my heart and in my mind. Uh, And instead, we looked through the lenses, we set up the lenses of seeing marriage through the lenses of covenant. We, in a partnership designed by God to make much of God and in a way that leads to human flourishing. And we saw that in Keller's definition, that we create this environment in our homes that are safe for the birth and nurturing of children uh, by, by coming together in this complementarian way. Uh, we, we then see, uh, out of uh, our understanding of this view of marriage, that it's me and my wife adjusting to God, not adjusting to one another. I don't get to say to Lauren, you make me happy. We both kind of fight together and work together so that we might submit our lives fully to God in Christ and have a marriage that's all about serving him and making much of him and creating an environment where our children see and get a sense of the glory of God in life together. And so that's what we talked about last week. Um, This week, as I said last week, we were going to talk about physical intimacy or what I'll call physical Oneness, but first let me set up our time together like this. In December of 2006, uh, a group of um, atheists um, started a, a project that went viral, and they call it the Blasphemy Project. And maybe you remember this, maybe you don't remember this, but but what uh, I, I forget the exact is the RRR something like that, a um, reasonable, rational something. Uh, they, they they put out this challenge that that encouraged young men and women to post on some sort of media outlet, whether that be YouTube uh, or some Facebook, and, and to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and, and, and as a way of kind of just daring God to do something about it, to, to cross the point of no return as they understood it, which, you know, the, the sad irony of that is, is the text that they're coming out of don't even mean say something bad about the Holy Spirit and you can never be saved. They, they, they revealed their ignorance of actually even what the Bible teaches by participating in the blasphemy project. But e- even if you Googled it today, and don't do that right now, um, but, but even if you were to Google that today, you would see hundreds of videos uh, of young men and young women recording themselves saying very wicked and deplorable things about the Holy Spirit of God. And, and here's something that I, that I want to kind of draw attention to, because these are people that are purposefully blaspheming against God. And, and if I were to kind of take just a, a hand-raised poll in here and just go, how many of you on purpose this week said, I'm going to blaspheme God in the hopes to show that he is not real and that I am not afraid of him? 
I'm guessing that there wouldn't be a lot of hands going, actually Tuesday, Pastor. I just have to believe that there wouldn't be too many hands that go, yeah, that's where I am. I want to bow up to the God of the universe. And yet, here's something that's fascinating to note. Uh, Of these thousands of people, of these thousands of people who did this, they got to eat food, they got to laugh with friends. If they got a headache, they got to take medicine. They, they got to have sex. They got, they got to do all these things because these, these things, there's this thing, this category that I think we forget about. It's called common grace. It's God goodness, God's goodness to all mankind, regardless of whether or not they shake their fist at the heavens or not. And so what you see so clearly in the Blasphemy Project is these people who have made it clear, publicly clear, posted on YouTube clear that I hate God and I don't want anything to do with God while enjoying the common grace of God. Now, when we think about sexual intimacy, when we think about sexual oneness, sex is a gift of God, a gift of common grace, which means you don't have to know God or love God to enjoy the physical act of sex. But I want to stay close to my notes here early on because I know that, uh, well, I'm just going to do this. Few things can be as beautiful or as painful as the pursuit of physical oneness, a healthy and intimate sex life. If you grew up in church, more than likely you heard very little about sex, except maybe sex is filthy, dirty, and disgusting, so save it for the one you love. Maybe you grew up in that kind of church, right? This is disgusting. We're not going to talk about this. You better avoid it. And then when you get married, you're like, okay, go, you know? And, and I mean, talk about whiplash in, in that moment, right? It's disgusting. So you save it for that person you love the most and you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And so there's that teaching. But I honestly think, as much as that was around, I think, when I was a teenager, I think you get, I think the pendulum swung all the way to the other side of the fence now where, where Christians, God help us, seeing that sex markets, everything else, have kind of bought into this lie also. That, that sex is somehow the apex of relational experience, right? That, that really the, the Mount Everest of relationships and companionship ha- has to do with great physical sex. Like, like it's like we're desperately trying to keep up with the sex that we think that the world is having. We're desperately trying to keep up with, look right at me, the sex that we think the world is having. When in reality, uh, all the sociological data paints a very different picture. By and large, uh, our culture's view of sex is divorced from any true relationship. Right? You, you, you read about and think about these hookup apps and things like Tinder and, and Bumble and all these things. Like, like what are they? They're, they're the ability to kind of connect physically without any kind of of relationship. It is divorced from affection and it is divorced from commitment. Natural boundary lines by which humanity flourishes and is not harmed. And yet we've removed all of that. And, and so what happens then is you make sex purely a physical act. It, it's all it is. It's a physical act. It's a thrilling physical biological happening that's not connected to my mind or my spirit. It's just, it's just physical. It's the same thing as eating a really good steak or some other kind of riding a carnival ride or it's just something that's thrilling that doesn't ultimately affect my heart and spirit. And yet, once again, and this is one of the, one of the things that's becoming more and more vibrant the more secularized we get as a culture is the hypocrisy in how we see and think about the world around us. Like what we know is seeing sex. What we know, this isn't a guess, it's not a gamble, it's not a might, what we know no, with a ton of data, is that viewing sex simply as physical pleasure with no true relationship, no real affection, and no real commitment 
does not address the deeper needs that we have as human beings. Remember last week, we talked about a deep need for companionship. Like we have a deep desire for intimate, rich, real, deep relationships. And so sex as a mere physical act will not solve that. It does not increase respect between genders. Like you would have to like if you want to take what's going on in pornography, and I know that from what I'm reading, like you take on the kind of grotesque, perverse nature of pornography and how insidious that's getting, and, and then you kind of start drawing parallels to the increase in sexual assault, the increase in, in sexual degradation of women. Like, like the idea of sex is just a physical act has not led to kind of this mutual love between the genders, this mutual respect between the genders. In fact, more and more and more women are treated in our culture as something to be consumed. It has not created more loving environments for children. And it has not been able to remove the ache of personal loneliness, nor has it fostered intimacy. In fact, I heard a man one time say where when societies decide to experiment sexually, it is women and children that bear the brunt of that. It is women and children that bear the brunt of that. Let me give you just a a quick example, and then I want to dive into the Bible because I have not come bearing bad news today. I have not, right? Um, Earlier this year, 2017, in the USA Today, uh, there was a survey, and here was the title of the survey, and it was written by a woman named Mary Bowerton. Sleeping together before a first date is okay, but looking at your phones are a put off. And here was the uh, research shows this, I'm quoting her research shows that millennials believe, not dogging on you, millennials, all right? This is how you showed up in USA today. No, I don't think it's all of you. In fact, I got great hope for your generation, right? But you, you failed this survey. Um, research shows that millennials believe it is more intimate to go on a first date than it is to have sex. Literally, the research, according to this USA Today poll uh, of a poll of a, a few thousand millennials, that they thought, oh, no, no, sex, sure, but going out together, like having a conversation, it's way too intimate. Right? Like for, to ask, I mean, and think about first dates. What are first dates? Where'd you grow up? What'd you major in? Like, oh, gosh, that kind of intimacy wigs me out, right? And unless you've got that weird kind of first date, tell me about your deepest sorrows, and unless you're that guy, don't be that guy, right? Um, This is what's happened. You've got a hollowing out, an emptying out of the beauty and meaning of sex. And so with that said, let's dive into Genesis 1.28. Here's my attempt at the first part of this sermon. The first part of this sermon is simply this. God did this. God did this. This is God's idea. God created this. This is not man-made. The devil hasn't introduced sex into the cosmos to deceive us. So it it says something about the nature and character of God that sex was given to humankind to begin with. So let's look at this, Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what what you have here, again, we looked at this verse again last week when talking about marriage. You got this cultural mandate and the command is to fill the earth, to subdue it, bring order, bring beauty, bring, uh, bring command to chaos. How? Fill the earth. Now, how do you do that? Well, the the man and woman were to have children and to have a, a lot of children, Right? Now, how do you have children? Well, I'm not, again, I said last week, no graphs, no charts, no videos, just, yeah, you have sex. So here's where I want to kind of draw your attention to. 
the, the physiology of sex, the biology of sex, was, was kind of wired into us by the God that created us. So sex is God's idea. There's, there's no part in the narrative of creation where God builds the man and woman and gets busy doing something else and the devil comes up and puts stuff on us that are more sexual in nature. Like, what does it say about the God of the Bible that when you think about the physiology and biology of sex, God put certain cells and parts of our body that only exist for pleasure? Like, what is that? Like, how does that reflect on the nature and character of God? That it is God that puts onto the woman, onto the man, parts of their anatomy that exist for pleasure alone. That says something about God. Like that God is not anti-sex. He's not nervous about sex. He doesn't have any regrets. He's like, oh gosh, this is so gross, right? That's not how God is operating here. This is God's idea. That's his deal. And if you look at Genesis 1.28, I think there have been moments in church history where um, you're like, sure, for procreation, but none of this kind of fooling around stuff. It's just you have a baby and then you don't touch each other, right? Um, well, I mean, that, that would not be great, but it, it, it's all over the Bible that this is not true. Like in Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and with my spice, I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink and be drunk with love. Now, this is a poem that Solomon writes uh, after his honeymoon night, Right? And, and so you're getting a sense in this poem that this isn't about procreation. Uh, and then later on, uh, when, when he says, drink until you're drunk with love, that, that's like, enjoy your bride, enjoy your husband, enjoy, this is a good gift that I've given to you, enjoy, you're, you're in the confines that I have created for your protection, enjoy. And then again in Song of Solomon 7, 1 through 6. And brothers, this is a poem from a long time ago. It will not translate to your game with your spouse today. And you'll know what I mean as we read. Song of Solomon 7, starting verse 1. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Right at me. Don't. <laughs> Just don't do it. If you're like, ooh, that's good. It's not good. I have not met the woman yet who's like, will you describe this as a heap of wheat encircled with lilies? Right? You, you have not married that. You're like, I married that. You did not marry that woman. I would even, I would even tend to stay away from the rounded thighs line. All right. I, I would just, I'm just saying this will not translate well into 2017 for better or for worse. Verse three, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes pools in Ashbon by the gate of Beth Rabin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon. Another one I'd cross off the list, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh, loved one, with all your delights. Now, does that sound like science to you? Does that sound like procreation? That's he is marveling. In fact, one of the things that most marks Solomon in the Song of Solomon about his bride is that he loves her. It is not her body that he is after. He wants 
her. It's not a mere sexual act. This is the only, this chapter seven, it's the only time in the book that he starts with her feet and goes up. He almost always starts with her head and goes down. And he just marvels at her. And almost all of this has a dual meaning, like the, the nose, right? That, that's, he's talking about her dignity or value or strength. He, he's not just looking at her body as some sort of sexual object, like he's held captive by her, not just by her physical beauty, by her strength, by her dignity, by the way she navigates the world, by the way she loves, by the way she serves. He is held captive. I am a prisoner. I am held captive by your beauty inside and out. This isn't mere physicality. It, it almost comes off as lust in a good way. So God started this, and it's not just for procreation. We are to enjoy it, to drink it deeply. But from here, God is going to begin to say some things that are scary and beautiful at the same time. They produce a great opportunity and a dangerous threat because sex is not a mere physical act. Sex touches the soul in, in some of the deeper Places. In Genesis 2, we read that two shall become one flesh. We read that last weekend. Jesus will later say, no, let no man separate this because they're saying, hey, two people are becoming one. Two, two souls are coming together, being knitted together as one. The Hebrew word for this, and we'll talk more about this in the back part of the sermon, is the Hebrew word for dode. It, it means the mingling of two souls. And it's not two bodies that have come together, but two souls that have come together and touched one another in a significant way that shapes and orient them in some specific ways. We see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 18. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, what do you think he's saying in this text when he says that to have sex is with a prostitute is to become one body with her? Is this merely just a physical act or is he saying something more significant? It appears in the text via the illusion of the Holy Spirit that is inside of us that now enables us to flee such immorality that he's saying, hey, listen, sex touches the soul and that can be really beautiful or that can be really, really dangerous. It can be really dangerous. So um, sex brings the body and soul into a kind of wholeness not otherwise known. So I'm going to say that again. Sex brings the body and soul into a kind of wholeness not otherwise known. So sex then is a divinely mysterious and beautiful thing. Let me, let me try to illustrate um, in a way that, that might be helpful. Um, you, you can physically harm yourself in a way that does not affect your soul. Uh, in eighth grade, for the first time, I was running uh, high hurdles, tripped over a hurdle, and broke my arm, right? Just broke it. And, and it was, you know, it's like a junior high track meet, so there's like 22 people in the stands, so it was really kind of a traumatic experience for me. But here's what happened. They put a cast around my arm, and six 
Eight weeks later, they took that cast off, and I don't have any soul wounds over that. That's not a real fight for me. I don't struggle to kind of connect with people because of that broken arm. I don't struggle with my self-worth because I broke that arm. I don't like, there are no kind of residual effects of my broken arm. But if you've ever been around anyone who's been sexually abused, you've ever been around anyone who has been raped, you've ever been around, you've been in those spaces, and I am well aware that these are heavy subjects the soul has been wounded they do carry those wounds intimacy is difficult relationships are trying and painful because sex touches the soul in a way that nothing else does which is why the warning to bring god's commands concerning sex abound in the scriptures, because to bring both the body and soul together is actually yet another shadow of the form of what God is doing in the gospel. So I want to talk about now um, kind of how uh, the Hebrews would have understood love and how they would come to think about sex, because I think it's really helpful for you and I in a day and age where there's not a lot of help in this area, despite the fact is, as I said last week, there are 190,000 books written on sex on Amazon.com, 190,000 books on sex. And and what happens is when sex becomes merely physical and not attached to the soul, all you're left with is technique to work on, right? That's all, and that's why there's 190,000 manuals, basically, on how to have better sex. It's, yeah, it's, I think it's sad and absurd. So um, the, the Hebrews had multiple words for love. Um, we, we don't. I think it's one of the weaknesses of the English language. Like, we just have love. So we love tacos. We love fajitas. We love the cowboys. We love our wife. We love our dog. We love our spouses. We love our children. We love our car. We love, that's all we got. We just got this word, love, right? We love our friends. We love, uh, you know, our new computer. We love the new iPhone. We just, that's all we've really got. But the Hebrews had multiple words, much like the Greeks. And so if you've got a church background, you're, you, you know, you know the same is true for the Greeks who had multiple words for love, right? You, 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 you have phileo, which means friend. You have eros, which is kind of the erotic love, right? You've got agape, which is this kind of full-on I love you no matter what. You, you've got these uh, unconditional love, right? You got, well, the Hebrews um, did this the same way. They, they actually had more than three, but I'm going to share the three that I think build on top of one another that gave them a right understanding of sex in a way that it might flourish. Um, the first is the Hebrew word raya. Right, raya, and and raya is is um, is friendship. That, that's that's basically what it is. Like we see it in Proverbs seventeen seventeen, a friend loves at all time. Raya is just friendship, and and so this is the foundation upon which relationships grow. Whether they become relationships that are um, that, that have um, a sexual component to it or not, the the base, the foundation of companionship for the Hebrews is this idea of raya. It's friendship. It's I know you, you know me, and we're getting to know one another. And then raya flows into the second word, which is ahava, and, and ahava is a love of the will. All right, it's a love of the will. So raya leads to ahava, and here's how that kind of works. When you, when you start a friendship, you kind of get a version of a person, and then as your friendship grows, you begin to see more and more and more about those per that person. Well, ahava occurs when you begin to see the weaknesses of the other and decide to stay anyway. 
So ahava, a word for love, is not an overly romantic word, if you will, right? So don't think, ah, ahava, love of the will. He sees me, she sees me. They're like, oh, my heart's fluttering. I will to love him. No, this is much more, this person's crazy, and I'm not going anywhere. That's a good way to think about ahava. This person has some problems, and I'm not going anywhere. This is ahava. So in order to get to, remember we talked about dode, a mingling of souls. In order to get to that. There's a deep friendship now rooted in commitment. I've seen you're crazy. I'm not going anywhere. I think one of the more romantic ideas around marriage that I think are somewhat silly is that um, like you're just not supposed to fight a lot. When Lauren and I were dating, um, and we just kept getting into the same fight over and over and over again. It always had kind of a different, uh, different kind of starting point, but it was actually the same argument. And so I went to David McQueen, who was uh, one of my mentors and dear friends, and I said, hey, I, man, I... I love Lauren Walker. I, I really do. I want to make her my wife. I just think she's got a real love for the Lord that, that I love. But man, we just keep getting in this fight. I mean, it's like a six-week cycle. It blows up, and then we've got to talk through it again. And, and then, man, we, we do well for it, and then it blows up again. And, and, and he said, well, okay. And, and he said to me something that it was both the most encouraging and discouraging thing I'd ever heard. He said this to me. He said, you're going to fight with someone the rest of your life. Do you want that person to be Lauren? <laughs> so, so I was like, you know what? I do want to fight with Lauren the rest of my life. And here I am, 2017, all these years later, still fighting with Lauren. Right? Because that, that stuff's ahava. That's a love of the will. That I'm not going anywhere. Lauren, I see you're crazy and I'm staying. Lauren says, hey, I see you're crazy and I'm staying. I'm going to lean into this. I'm going to ahava our love. It's not just friendship. It's deeper than friendship. It's, it's I'm stepping into this, not stepping away from this. And so for the Hebrews, to get to dode, which was this mingling of souls, sex that it was intended to be, not a mere physical act, but, but the joining, the weaving together of two individuals into one, it required friendship that was committed. And then, and only then, could you experience sex as God designed it to be. Now, I just want to always say, I don't think you have to be a Christian to enjoy sex. Biologically, Sex is pleasurable. So, so it's not like you, you have to know Jesus in order to have sex. But what I am saying is the fullness of what you've been created for and what God designed sex to be will always be missed by you without an understanding and submission to the God of the Bible. And here's why. Because without soul-level harmony, right? Without this understanding that, that we've been put together as companions to partner for the glory of God, then we might be able to come together physically. We might be able to come together emotionally, but we'll never come together spiritually. That dode mingling won't ever take place. So sex will always hit a kind of ceiling, and we see this happening everywhere, which is why we're so consumed with technique. So we're so consumed with technique. And so if you want to think about sexual relationship like God does, it's strong friendship rooted in strong commitment where you are known, valued, and loved where two become one flesh. Now, 
What, what makes this a little bit more difficult is the physical act is a lot easier than building an ongoing friendship and, and continuing to lean in when things get difficult, right? Because what happens is the physical, um, the physical relationship is somewhat easy compared to these other two, and yet it's in these other two that lead to a better, more soul-rich sex life. So if you punt on friendship, you punt on commitment, then sex will always be hollowed out in its ultimate meaning because God has designed for you, ladies, look at me, for you to be cherished as a soul before you are enjoyed as a body. You have been designed by God to be cherished as a soul, to be valued, to be seen as someone of great worth. And, and that can't happen if there's not a friendship there that's gotten so deep that your weaknesses have now been seen. And then it's in your, your weaknesses being seen and someone extending that graciousness going, hey, I, I love all that brokenness in you, man. I'm broken too. You're broken, man. We should kind of heal up together as we partner with one another, glorify God. This is why sex is reserved for marriage because it's in that kind of relationship, the covenant, locked in, monogamous. I'm not going anywhere. Abba, working on Raya and enjoying Dode because of the deep friendship and commitment that we have to one another, Right? And this is God's big plan. This is where sex begins to flourish and thrive. And, but I've got some, a couple things I want to chat with here. I know for many of us, intimacy can be extremely difficult. Um, there are a few things more vulnerable um, than, than sex. And, and so we bring a lot of baggage, a lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness, usually into our marriages. Some of us, physically, sex is just extremely painful. You're almost always dealing with um, two separate drives. Not always, but usually dealing with two separate drives. You, you've got uh, a real strong drive and a real low drive or uh, the opposite. It, every time I've kind of taught on this, I've done some, some conferences on this stuff. And, and every time I do it, I, I, I mean, I get on repeat these emails from these women saying, hey, I've got a real strong sex drive in my husband and he does not. And, and so this isn't just a one-way street. I mean, we can kind of snicker every time you kind of talk about a guy wanting more sex than a woman. But, but in reality, that's not all that's out there. There's all sorts of brokenness. There's all sorts of issues that we're trying to navigate through. Not to mention the fact that if I think about our church, particularly here in Flower Mound and Plano and South, like you're talking about um, a lot of people with a lot of kids. And then like when do you even have sex, right? I mean, you're, you're exhausted when they go to bed. And how do you kind of work towards that and work on that? So I know that intimacy is difficult. Nervousness can keep us uptight. Physical issues can make sex difficult. Uh, I, here, I said this last week. I, I want to just continue to encourage you in this way. These things should not embarrass you. So I said it last week, I'm going to say it again. You are human. Just breathe for a second. And, and here's what humans do. They, humans get afraid. They get anxious. They get nervous. Humans can struggle with sexual things because they're humans and the world has fallen and broken. So what I want to ask you to do, like I did last week, like I'm about to do, and like I will again next week, is to step into the light. Again, if you remember back to last week, if you weren't there, hopefully by this point in my last week, last week, last week, you'll get the podcast and catch up. But, but listen, the, the projection of strength, the projection of this isn't an issue for us, man, it, it's, it's harming, not helping. You've got to step into the light. It, it is not... It is not a, a knock on you to have issues in this area of your life. 
You just need to have the courage to come forward and say, man, we're really struggling in this area. I'm not sure what it is. We can't navigate it. We need someone to help us navigate it. And to come into a community that can hold you accountable, encourage you in your relationship with one another while you extend grace to one another. In the marriage bed, let me talk to the men first. Brothers, to pressure, force, or manipulate sex is so outside of what God has for you and for your wife and the damage you cause both your souls, what you rob both your souls when you manipulate, coerce, or force sex is reaping for you a harvest of loss and destruction that's probably hard to get your mind around because you haven't tasted the goodness of cultivating a deep friendship where when weaknesses and vulnerabilities are seen, you enter that with compassion and grace, not with demands and whining. There's never been a, a sexy, pouty man. Like, do you understand that? Like, there's just never been that man who could pout and be sexy at the same time. Ooh, like, you moping around the house all the time. She's never just going to be like, man, I love the, oh, gosh, nothing gets me all bothered. Like, you pouting around the house like a child. You know, that, like, you, you've got to enter this space with grace, patience, and kindness. You know why? Because that's how God entered your space with you. Grace, patience, and kindness. In the song, one of the things that's fascinating about the song is in chapter four, on their honeymoon night, one of the things that becomes clear is she is really insecure. Earlier in chapter two, she says, I am swarthy, don't look at me, right? Don't, I, I don't look good, don't look at me. So she's got these insecurities. So on their wedding night, like the entire wedding night, seems like it's him trying to draw her out. Like he's like, look at your hair, dead gum, your hair. Now don't try to search dead gum in the back, right? That's, I'm just kind of remixing here. Um, so look at your hair, look at your eyes, look at your cheeks, look at your nose, look at your mouth. Oh my gosh, look at your teeth. Like Solomon had this weird thing about teeth. Like every time he describes his girl, he's like, all your teeth are like whitewashed used. Like you're not missing any of them. Like the whole flock is there. Like he just really geeks out about, you got all your teeth, baby. I love this. Look at your chin. Look at your neck. And then when he approaches her breasts, he says, like two fawns. Now, how do you approach fawns? Baby deer. You run at them. You don't run at baby deer right? They're, they're frightened creatures. So Solomon's commitment was, I will woo her out of her insecurities if I have to stay here all night. The goal for me is not to have physical sex with my wife's body, but to love one another in such a way that the mingling of souls actually occurs. I want to value her, love her, woo her out of her affection out of her insecurities until she can rest and give herself to me. And that's slow and requires patience and grace. Men, the pursuit of your wife's heart should always be the pursuit of your wife's heart. We don't do things to get sex. We love because we love. Are you tracking with me? 
And, and then ladies, here's what I would lay before you. Unless you're one that has the really strong drive, then, then biologically speaking, the hormones that work in you and the hormones that work in your husband are different, right? Testosterone's going to kind of put in us a desire for a, a lot of sex often, most men. Not all men, most men. And, and estrogen is not going to produce that same drive in most women. And, and so there will be times... When, when you just graciously give to your husband, when you're not all kind of just filled with um, wine and happiness that, that you have just in your heart, I'm going to serve my husband in this way. He doesn't get to demand that from you. But there are those times where you're like, hey, listen, I, I know this serves him and I want to serve him. And, and you give yourself to him in, in a way that, that serves him. He's not allowed to demand that. You, you don't need to feel bad if, if, if that's just isn't happening in this day or this week. But I want to encourage you, if you're just stuck and jammed up because of past abuse, because of shame and guilt that you carry, because of maybe a lifestyle before you came to know Christ or before you came into this marriage, or your marriage is filled with all these regrets as you look back on what you were doing before you got married and how you came into uh, your relationship with Christ. I, I want this to be a space where you can begin to work through that together, whether that be at recovery or you come up and grab the hands of one of our ministers up here. And we have ladies up here as well as men up here to come just grab the hand and go, we're stuck. We're not quite sure how to navigate this space. It, it's not uncommon for us to hear about money and sex, right? So you're not, if you think that you're going to be the first one to go, hey, we're struggling with sex, you're, you're not going to be the first one. You're going to be the 400,000th one, I think, in 15 years. So, so you ought to just come and, and see what the Lord might do. But nothing gets better by hiding it in the dark. Everything gets better by coming into the light. Sex isn't a bad thing. It's a very good thing given by God, a gift of common grace for the flourishing of humankind. As Christians, we see and understand that it's not a mere physical act. It's an act of two souls becoming one that can be very beautiful or very painful. And so we want to heed God's warning. We want to save sex from marriage. We, we want to protect the marriage bed. We want to work at friendship. We want to work at our commitment. We want to guard our eyes and our heart and our imaginations. We want to be a one-woman man, a one-man woman. With how we think, with how we act, with what we look at, and constantly trying to cultivate friendship, cultivate respect between one another, cultivate. I said last week I want to just continue to press you towards become an expert in the beauty and goodness of your spouse. Just become an expert in that. You don't need to become an expert in some other guy or some other woman. You need to become an expert in your spouse. You, you, should, be, uh, you should have a Ph.D., fellas, in your wife. You should have a Ph.D., ladies, in your husband. Like a dissertation. I can tell you all the good things. What about the bad? You know the bad, right? You don't have to work at spotting weaknesses. Don't we naturally see what we wish was better? What we don't naturally see is what's so good. So uh, again, I want you to continue to cultivate this. Listen, I, I've got high hopes. If you're a, a younger generation, man, you guys, you, you are being discipled in the exact opposite direction of where I'm trying to teach and where I think the Word of God teaches. So you're going counter to the very thing that leads to the thing you so desperately want, to be known, to have deep relationship, 
to be valued as a soul. If you buy into your generation's version of what good sex is, you're going to be off the mark. You will not experience the goodness that God has created you to walk in. And brothers and sisters, let me just end with this, really. No one in this room has outsend the grace of God. There's no sexual perversion in this room that upon repentance and confession coming into the light and moving towards the forgiveness and mercy of God cannot be wiped clean, reset, and reinvited into God's goodness and grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women. I just know that um, for our time together today that there's probably some gaps and some holes here and some questions that will need to be asked. But I do pray um, for men and women who are struggling in this area of their lives. I just pray a, a willingness to, to come into the light and be honest. I pray a real specific prayer uh, for my brothers and sisters who are struggling with consistent pornography use. Just ask Spirit of God that they would come into the light with that. And they would take very serious steps to put that sin to death. What a twisted and morbid sin that is. God, how it reshapes how we think and see, how we measure and approach, how it dehumanizes and belittles. So I ask God that we'd have the courage to confess that, come into the light. And where this is a real issue, intimacy is a real issue, either because of physical pain or emotional spiritual baggage, I pray that you would help us not feel shame or embarrassment, but to seek refuge in you and seek refuge in the community of faith. Help us, we need you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.